everybody. Welcome to Haggerty's Never Stop Driving Podcast. This is the pod for those who love cars and driving and are committed to keeping these precious things alive. Now, we're going to bring you the latest from the car world, of course, Haggerty Media, and we'll bring interviews with the car world's most compelling people. I'm your host, Larry Webster. I'm editor-in-chief of Haggerty Media, and my co-host today is a guy who can tell you uh, where to get the best cheesesteak. And I've learned uh, just recently, we're going to talk about it, he's both a philosopher as well as a car nut. He's uh, Eric Wiener, the executive editor of Haggerty Media's website. Uh, hi, Eric. This is a big week for us here in Ann Arbor, isn't it? It definitely is. And for the record, if you're visiting Philadelphia, the, you know, the townie sandwich is not the cheesesteak. It is it's the not? roast pork Italiano. Okay. Well, I was just going to say, I teed you out to say like, wow, Michigan, we're here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's uh, Tuesday or Wednesday the 10th and uh, the University of Michigan football team won the, the championship. I, I never watch football. I love cars and it's kind of a, they're one or the other for me, but the town has just gone crazy. Um, yeah. I, know, I mean, it's, it's, they burned, I think 17 couches, which is my understanding was a, was a Michigan state thing, but I guess emotions overwhelm you. What are you going to do? Burn some couches. Yeah, the videos I saw were really funny because everybody's holding up their phone. So I was like, oh, I see. They gathered to film each other. Gathering. Interesting. Really fascinating. <laughs> but the town well, feels really happy. On. I'm happy for, I know some of the University of Michigan regions, and I know what they struggle with for this head coaching position. You know, Harbaugh has been at it for almost 10 years, and the first half of his tenure was really shaky to the point that, uh, from my understanding, he took a little bit of a pay cut. and then. Um, uh, rejiggered his staff and here we are but this is not a sports podcast god i would i would get <laughs> you flounder pretty quickly <laughs> but what's big in our camp this week is the consumer electronics show in vegas and uh um, yep. have you ever been i've never been i've actually never been i uh managed uh never to get my number called for that one well it seems crazy become- overwhelming it seems crazy overwhelming because it's all consumer electronics. So it's sort of like the product show for all the tech right. world. And the reason we're talking about it is, man, over the past decade, decade and a half, this has become really, I mean, let's talk about it. The most important car show in the U.S. these days, or would you say that's overhyping it? Uh, it's interesting. They, they, I think they changed the name from consumer electronics show to just CES. I don't know why. But oh. I'm not sure that that is the most important show in a vacuum, but so many of the other auto shows have just completely become insignificant that right. it almost is now the most important show by default. I mean, we were just reporting last week on, on Haggerty Media about um, Stellantis pulling out of, pulling out of all uh, North American auto shows. And, right. you know, if you were at Detroit this year or, you know, in, in the last few years, it, it ain't what it used to be. And same goes for LA and New York and, um, so yeah, I mean, CES is where car companies who are increasingly obsessed with data and in-car uh, entertainment and sure. virtual assistants and AI—that's that's that's their market for it, and that's their test bed, and so that's where they show it at CES. Yeah, I, I mean, um, I, it's telling that we've never been. I mean, for me, it, it's probably excusable. You know, I've been at this so long, I'm sort of like the old dog. But for you, you got to get out there if you want to be like in the new car world and up on what's going on. We're going to have to send you next year. Make sure you go and yeah. report I'll, back. I mean, I'm definitely open to checking it out. I have no, uh, I have no like specific principle against it. 
Yeah. What I find fascinating is, um, and I wrote about it in this week's Never Stop Driving newsletter. It's one of many newsletters, everybody, that you can get for free. Uh, go to the hattergerty.com website and you can get a daily digest of all the stuff that we produce. You can get a weekly. You can get specialized stuff from Marketplace, including uh, here directly from me on every Friday. And I was uh, writing about these infotainment systems, which is basically the in-car, it's a replacement for the radio. And I remember, you know, right at my tail end of car and driver, these things started showing up. And it was like BMW iDrive, Ford Sync. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember what Toyota called theirs. Everybody had a name for them. Yeah, I can't remember. And it started with a screen. And I saw the beginnings of these back in the 90s when they had a really bare bones navigation system. And, you know, right from the start, all these systems wanted to be like embedded, owned. And, you know, I remember all of us in the business are like, well, the phone is like 8 million times better. And that's when you started hearing <laughs> this thing called terminal mode, which was, oh, okay, the car is just going to be another screen for your phone. And you can operate your phone through the car. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's I mean, how else is the way, was the way it's going to go? And that's what CarPlay and Android came around. Yeah. But now these, these um, the car companies are rightly kind of terrified of being just vessels for the tech industry, right? I mean, it's kind of a fascinating thing that they're worried about. And I agree. I think they see, I understand. They see, they see profit just like they see, I mean, their job is to make money and, and the margins the for selling cars are not as good as they used to be. And it is very, uh, you know, convenient and a little bit more straightforward to make money on, on data and on other kinds of partnerships and that kind of thing. Um, and I think they also, they, they want to have full control over it. They, they don't want to have to work with a, an outside tech company. They want to be able to have the customer fully inside their own ecosystem. You know, GM's been talking for years about wanting to put ads in infotainment systems, um, you know, on navigation. You know, you're driving sure. by a Taco Bell and it's like, how about a Chalupa? You know, I know we've been hearing I, that for at least five years, probably more like 10. And every year that day comes, like, why would we even want that, number one? Do I want that? I bought I this car and now I, I, I've got, what's that? <laughs> I have many thoughts on it. I think most of the, all of this stuff is, is for a, a fictional customer. I, I don't think, I don't know anybody or I don't, I, I don't think anybody wants all of this stuff. Okay, well, we need to define what the stuff is, right? And and that's one of the more interesting things. Like we've we've heard the car companies say, like, nope, we definitely want to have control of the in car experience because we're going to make money over all these services, and we're going to sell subscriptions, yeah. and we're going to sell content, we're going to sell advertising. But it's never, I mean, the stuff that they bring up, it's like they have this seems to me the same one or two notes where yeah. they're like, well. Yeah, you know, let's say you're going by a Taco Bell and a and an ad for Taco Bell pops up. Would you want that? And I thought, wait, that that's it? Like what else is it? You I mean Spotify already is everybody's music subscription, so that's not gonna come. Right. You're not gonna get a Netflix subscription. So I always feel like, gosh, there's something I'm missing here because I don't I don't understand. What do they Well, think right now, I mean to go to CES, VW uh, you know, announced they're gonna be the the first to have a chat GPT integration. Sure. And that makes sense. it seems like the advantage of that, at least that I can tell from the outside, is that in most cars for the 10 years that I've been in the business, the voice recognition is just garbage. It just it never does what you want it to do. It's yeah. it's it's never as good as uh, you know, as sure. Google Assistant or Siri. And the ability of a large language model to 
translate what a person is saying into data that a computer can understand is just going to be better than anything that VW can generate on its own. So they're hoping yep. that they can use that to better understand people's uh, commands and to integrate with the car, which is, I imagine, the most challenging part of it. But they, in the press release, they they talk about just this, the sentences just come across as just totally fantastical. Like they say, enriching conversations, clearing up questions, interacting in intuitive <laughs> language, receiving vehicle-specific integration, and much more, more purely hands-free. Oh my gosh, like, what are the enriching conversations? I, your battery voltage is Well, also the enriching volts. conversations that you're having like with your car. Like who wants this? And if there's somebody else in the car that, that is enriching the conversation, that person has a phone. They can look up anything that you want. Like I don't I don't get this desire to talk to your technology. Well, I, I totally in, see what you're you're getting at. You know, Ford was very I mean the the, the, the elephant in the room with all this stuff is distraction. Right, and the the original infotainment systems, whether they had a thumb wheel or a touchscreen or whatever, they took your eyes off the wheel and or off the road. And a lot of them were so hard to use. They had like you know twenty different menus yeah. you had to go through just to adjust the temperature in the car. Totally, and Ford was pretty proactive there. They had that sync system that was heavily based on voice, and but the technology just wasn't the recognition wasn't there yet. So yeah. I understand Volkswagen's. Uh, this is what I read as a, their bill, their desire to use this as basically better voice recognition. Hey, turn the temperature down. Oh, okay, right. Instead I don't of know. I'm just I'm imagining a family of four in the minivan and the kid right? in the back who's screaming that they want the temperature to be turned down. Are you going to be like, oh, everybody, quiet down? And the car needs to hear me. Put like, come on. These these are I just I don't buy it. I don't I don't. These yeah you I, know I, Eric, I, you're I, just not I, future looking. You're not future. I guess enough. not, but I, I mean, I'll believe it when I see it. I'm not inherently against it, but I, I think they all promise big, and very few of them ever deliver anything that is meaningfully better. Take the Mercedes. I drove like a Mercedes EQS um, last year, and it's this enormous hyperscreen. I mean, it takes up basically the whole width of the car. It, it is looks like cool. it's so cool looking, and it is yeah. really it works really well. It does everything you want it to. It's easy to interact with. I love the augmented reality that like shows you the path uh, with via camera feed that shows you like this is where you make your turn. I mean, I know I've been in an unfamiliar city where I've like, which exit ramp do I take when they branch off into like four different ways? If you've ever been to Houston, it is like that. Like I would love a camera feed that overlays the arrow onto the exact ramp I want to take. So there's mm, there's yeah, ways yeah. in which it's definitely useful. But the first thing it says, this enormous, colorful, lit up, beautiful, crisp, gorgeously pixelated screen. And it's like, do not be distracted by the content of the screen. <laughs> it's like, this thing is like Wait, scientifically designed to capture my attention. <laughs> like even like in the best of circumstances, like I... It, yeah. They're talking out of both sides of their mouth, and yeah. um, I don't, I don't see that it is meaningfully different from a phone, yeah, unless it's, it's a, a head-up a head display is better. I will say that, and good integrations. I mean, of everybody's got their opinions here. I mean, the, the answer is clearly voice. Whether or not you know, it's it's some command to let it be listening. I mean, we know these things are listening to us all the time because it it sort of reads our minds with ads, and that's creepy enough. Um, the thing that. Um, fascinates me about this is watching 
legacy car companies that have really high expertise in manufacturing very complex products uh, relatively cheaply and really high quality. I know nothing's perfect, but if you think about how long our cars run, what they do, how safe they are, oh. it's, it's it's a modern Every vehicle. study has shown that cars are getting longer lived. and, and Yeah, you know. I mean, their average age is 11 years old. And, you know, I was just yeah. looking at a CRX that has 300,000 miles on it today. And I was like, I just want to drive it, see how bad it is or not. <laughs> Imagine um, it drives like a CRX with 200,000 miles. <laughs> Can't be that could, different. <laughs> which could be a rattle trap, which is, uh, you know, with all kinds of vacuum leaks. But so you have those companies, that's their expertise. Then, you know... They've been infatuated with Silicon Valley, probably rightly so, because they see that's where the money is and that's where the business is. One of the things I noticed out of the top five most valuable companies, four of them are tech companies. Yeah. I mean, like GM and Ford aren't even in the top 50. So you could understand wanting to be this, and this is what the customers want. But, you know, Volkswagen had that, they, they, they opened up an entire new software center. Do you remember this? And mm-hmm. their entire portfolio of cars, Audi, Volkswagen, I want to say Lamborghini, and everyone was going to be based on this new electronic architecture. And that was going to run the car, the engine, the HVAC, all this stuff. I don't know where, I remember the guy who was running it got canned because it was a year late and it didn't work right and it was causing all these problems. And it was just another mm-hmm. example of, wow, this is really, really hard. They've they've had a tough couple of years. I mean, they... um there's really negative feedback, you know, across the industry to the interface that's in their ID3 and ID4. And that was part of this the, project, and the, right? And the Mark 8 Golf. And they 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 backtracked a bit. I mean, they had all the haptic feedback controls on the steering wheel, um, but everybody was annoyed with them, and they were fumbling and difficult to use. And so they went back to physical buttons. They upgraded the screens and the software. Um, I remember I drove an ID4 prototype, and I remember that's the their voice control. Car. That's the electric uh, compact yeah. SUV, like a Rav Four competitor, and uh, really spacious. I mean, it spoke to VW's like really seasoned expertise in packaging, and the design was really good. And there were things I really liked about it, um, but everything to do with the interface, every every UX, you know, user experience part of it, uh, from the voice control to the climate controls to everything, was just an absolute nightmare and i remember yeah. being like oh well, it's a prototype car they said they're working on it we'll see how it happens when it comes to production and in production it was not meaningfully better and yeah well the talent this is what i was i was trying to get to the talent to create these systems that are intuitive and easy to use is a talent and um, Definitely. i think that the car companies are used to saying well we're going to hire wherever and they're going to do it but you know, to your point, the current Volkswagen GTI, it's that's a car near and dear to all of our hearts because it's really fun mm-hmm. to drive. We're all about saving driving. It's uh, very practical. It's not very expensive. I just, my, uh, I had a Mark 7, which is a previous generation. My daughter totaled. She was fine, but I was, I was just crushed because I love that car. And, um, you know, Camisa, I remember he came out and he is a VW fanboy, right? His most favorite car oh, is his original Scirocco and is he's got the Cabriolet. The Cabrio, yep. Yeah, and he said, no, the user interface is so bad, and this is to operate the radio, the HVAC, whatever else, mm-hmm. car is so bad, I, I could not imagine owning this car. 
Like that's how important this user interface is. Yeah. And when you get it right, it is something you never think about. And when you get it wrong, it is a, a major decide a major a major deciding factor. I remember about ten years ago, my brother, um, you know, was early in his career as a lawyer, and he was trying to decide what car he wanted to buy. Yeah. And he really like every he wanted to get a Cadillac ATS. Like he loved the look of the car. He test drove it. Really liked how it drove. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. he like wanted he didn't want to drive a german car which is a lot of his kind of colleagues were driving and he wanted to drive an american car and then he got in it and if you remember cadillac q the first iteration of q and he was just like instantly was like i don't care how well it drives he's like i'm not dealing with this every day it yeah. had all the haptic feedback and like it, it was it was an eye opener for me as, buttons. yeah yeah i mean it was an eye opener for me because um, yeah. i was like wow this is a this is a major deciding factor in people's um, shopping process. I mean, it, it can just be like a light switch. If it doesn't work, they're like, nope, I'm out. Oh, it's been 10 years of the, the two most important things are the design of the car and does it or does it not have CarPlay? But, yeah. you know, this is so pretty this, this, yeah. this, this is the backdrop why CES is, is something on our radar that normally wouldn't be because the car companies go there not only to show their stuff to the showgoers, but also. They need to court these people in the technical industry to come work for them. I mean, it's really yeah. interesting. Within two months this past summer, both Ford and GM hired a big wig exec away from Apple to run their software. Well, there services. were big layoffs in in the tech world. I mean, that was. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a good argument that, that the car companies are potentially going to be the beneficiary of those of they those trimmings. They need it because if you look at a if you've tried a Mach E Ford Mach E and yep. the app the Ford Pass. They're really clumsy to use. Now, the hard part as somebody like us that we have to be responsible and explain, well, it's hard to use because of X, Y, Z. That gets really hard to explain. It's like, well, it took me, I don't know, three swipes to get to X. It's not really, it's a very subjective judgment. But I know having been in the Mach-E and then when I've been in Teslas, I haven't driven them a lot, but I get in them, they've got the big touchscreen, everything's there. I'm like, oh, got it. Oh, really they, quickly. They work the best they work. <laughs> yeah. There's so no question is, that they have the the aptitude for that. And this is where the 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 automotive industry is trying to get to. So this is why CES is important, and this is why I mean, the AI chat that you talked about. That's really one of the biggest news. The other one that was just on Hacker Media today was this. I thought really. I mean, just the neatest looking thing. We're not going to talk about it too much because people have to go to the, uh, Haggerty.com to see it. But that new Honda concept car. Are you talking about it, the wedge or the van? The wedge. Yeah, it's cool what's, looking. What, what's that thing called? Uh, I can't remember exactly what they called it. Solus? I mean, you just don't see that sort of fresh design language anymore. And you almost never see um, concept cars anymore. But, They're calling this part Honda, of the Honda Zero series. Um, yeah, the saloon but, I mean, is the wedge that you're talking about. I mean, super cool. I, everybody, go to the uh, go to the Haggerty website and take a look. I mean, it's really like the most fresh, but also good, fresh in a good way, car design that I've seen in a, in a very very long time, and from Honda. Which yeah. isn't really known. I mean, their cars. They are uh, they're looking. an interesting place because you know they Honda. they kind of had this recent breakup with GM after yeah. they were going to do all this partnership for the um, EVs for the EVs on the Ultium platform, mm-hmm. the GM platform. And I maybe I'm just being uh, overly uh, skeptical here or overly cynical, mm-hmm. but you know the the philosophy that they're espousing now is 
thin, light, and wise, which just seems like an absolute takedown of the Cadillac lyric and the, you know, Hummer EV and everything that GM makes, which, you know, if you look at the weight of these cars and the the styling, which is very blocky and bulky and chunky, is anything but thin, light, and wise. Well, it's a return to what they're good at. And I always think of Honda Golden Gears as 1980 to 2000. And that's when their cars all had a very um, crisp mechanical feel to all the controls. Yeah, the cars CRXs. were very, they, they were very efficient. I don't mean necessarily just fuel economy. They had good fuel economy, but I mean, in the interior packaging, the size, the way you could see out of them, the engines, they had these four-cylinder engines, which do vibrate. And I owned a bunch of them. I just had a couple of preludes a few years ago. And the engine be running, you could put your hand on the valve cover and it it did not shake. I mean, they were, Yeah. I, I mean, the, the engineering town, this is when they were winning Formula One championships with Ayrton Senna in the late 80s. Honda is a really impressive company. So they just weren't necessarily the design champs. So to see this car is going to be cool. But they're like Mazda, great company, really good engineering chops. They just don't have the resources to really dump into uh, battery technology and EV technology, which is sort of why they're behind. They've um, been a little hesitant too. Sense. Of course. Yeah, big them risk. and Toyota, they were both both skeptical uh, when everybody yeah. else was, well, not everybody else, but many other companies, including GM and Ford um, and a lot of German companies were like quick on the hype train to get on EVs as quickly as possible. Toyota was kind of famously uh, a little bit reserved. And, and, you know, of course, they had a business interest because they were and still oh, are kind of king of the hybrids. Yes. Yeah. So they kind of want to keep that business going. But they funded, and Akio said this multiple times, uh, he fundamentally believed that the technology Akio was not, the Akio Toyota was, was fundamentally like, we don't know this is the answer yet. Uh, and, you know, continued with solid state battery research as opposed to lithium ion battery research. Yeah. A lot of stuff in the hydrogen. I mean, they took a big swing with a Toyota Mirai. Um, Hyundai continues to work on hydrogen, and there was a bit of a hydrogen buzz at CES this year. Um, you know, I know last July, Cummins had announced that they were developing and had, I think, European permission to um, like research and maybe implement uh, an internal combustion engine that is powered by hydrogen fuel. And Yeah, the advantage to hydrogen, and it's been around for decades as a replacement fuel. I mean, in, in a theoretical dream world, you could split the water molecule to spit out hydrogen and oxygen very energy intensive so let's just throw out the realities today but hypothetically you could generate that energy renewably with solar or wind or whatever and then that hydrogen could be used either in a fuel cell to generate electricity or it can be burned in an internal combustion engine and by the way it's just sort of like uh, your propane gas tank you can you can connect it to a tank and and uh fill your tank much quicker than you could charge a battery so that has obviously some um, attraction to it. I think some of the downsides are that, that to have a meaningful amount of hydrogen on the car, the, the tanks have to be pressurized to a exorbitant amount. And it's and also really heavy. And the, the tanks the transport, end up being heavy. Yeah. And heavy in the vehicle. And then they're also heavy to transport to the fueling stations, which means right. if you're looking at the whole kind of carbon footprint of the whole process, it's, it's not. That's why it would have to be free. local local yeah. generation and so part um, of the announcement ces and something i learned when i was kind of doing the research is i think the u.s made a seven billion dollar investment 
and or is announcing um a seven billion dollar investment in developing like uh regional hubs for hydrogen uh distribution yeah. and development um so well, one, hyundai one of the other things the solution you know hydrogen is h2 it's only got one um electron yeah. it's h1 right what is h2 that's the molecule Hydrogen's got one electron. Yeah. Hydrogen. So it has H. one electron. Yeah. So it's such a light um, molecule that they have to cool it to increase any density. So there's a meaningful amount of it also in that tank. So a lot of the tanks, people don't know, is it, it'll bleed out some hydrogen over time to keep the temperature low. You're so, teaching me here, Larry. I didn't, didn't cover this in my art history degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's I'm gonna like, come in really? later in a minute here. <laughs> wow, really? Hydrogen's light? I'm like, yeah, duh duh. That's why I was in the, the blimps and stuff like that. Don't you know that? So um I did take chemistry in high school, but yeah, it's been a while. Well, anyway, that that's why the CES show is so important and we've covered it. Um I think it's really fascinating that that has become such a big car show, but we've we've covered some of the reason why. I want to move on a little bit. And before I do, I want to say, like, you know, this program's brought to you by the Haggerty Drivers Club. This is the one club for all your um, driving needs. As a member, you get roadside assistant for your classic. You get six issues of the great Haggerty Driver Club magazine. You get access to events. You get discounts and more. Please check it out at Haggerty.com. And also, we have a lot of great content that's available for free. That's on our Haggerty.com website. But also, you should look at it on our YouTube channel. And um, just recently, our videos are streaming continuously on Samsung TV Plus, channel 1194. Check it out, I was watching it over the weekend, it's really, really fun. Um, but what I wanna move on to is this article that you just wrote, um, and I think it's Thaddeus or somebody, it's very philosophical, it sort of hits on this topic that we, it's one of these notes I say, like we're always gonna play this note just in different key, and you know we, yeah. we really looked into it deeply with the, this, this patina issue, which we, looked at like how a car changes as it's old and it's very like high-minded and um the crux of this was a one a ferrari it was a ferrari 500 mondial from the 50s it was a race car that was basically um a lump of crumpled metal without an engine and it sold for almost two million dollars last yeah summer, it was in a right? it was in a building collapse in uh a hurricane in Florida, early 2000s. Right. And so yeah. it had a many transformations like many race cars do over its life. Mm -hmm. But prior to this, prior to selling, yeah, it had been basically completely destroyed and sold for almost two million bucks. And the, as one it? comment on the article pointed out, the short version of the story is some rich person really believes that if they yeah. put enough energy and money into this car to fully restore it to perfect condition, whatever that means to that person, that it's going to be worth at least the cost of, uh, you know, the sale plus the restoration to be able to at least come out even and, and probably a little better after it's done. That's true, um, I think. It, it's definitely true. I mean, I think it's it'll definitely cost true. Five million to restore it or rebuild the it. The deeper question, which is the thing I love about cars is they, they provoke in me and in many people deeper questions they are a way to look at wait should i wait should i put the coolest problems of the world are we huh? getting deep are you burning the incense what we're this getting is a deep, deep story i don't deep thoughts I think with I'm eric wiener i'm out of, i'm out of incense i i i i, I huffed it okay, all well, doing the story you really wanted to investigate this a little deeper which you did and 
uh, you compared this Ferrari to a ship. Tell us about that. So there's the the question that this that after the after this restoration, every nut and bolt in this car is going to have to be replaced. I, I mean, even if you look at the photo of it, it's, it's I'm a not sure. Wreck. Okay, let's assume that there will be no metal from this lump reused in the new car, or maybe in a in a two thousand pound car, ten or twenty yeah. pounds will be so from that original. If, right after that maybe. change, and it's completely. Even if you use yeah. new old stock parts and everything's, you know, blessed by Ferrari and, and, and whatever else, is the end result really still, the, is it the same car or is it something else? And yeah. that's a philosophical question. And uh, the kind of philosophical paradox that it brings to the surface is, is a, a centuries old question called the ship of Theseus. There's different versions of it the philosophers have kind of caught up with over the years, but the, the, the base of it is if you replace every single plank, mast, sail, empty bottle of grog on the ship, is it now the same ship or is it a different ship? And other versions of it are even more interesting. Like, let's say you take your Ferrari 308 into the shop. They take off every single nut and bolt. They put it in a pile, The whole, all the panels, the engine, whatever. They make a brand new one using just the number plate with new parts. And then they reassemble your original one into a second car. Which one's Larry Webster's Ferrari 308? Or Dino 308, really. Is, Listen, Eric. Yeah. I, I studied mechanical engineering. <laughs> yeah, you don't I care. Like, it's just two I'm black and white. The first question you ask with that ship, you said people have studied this ship, Sympathetius or... Theseus. Theseus. Ship of Theseus is the What is, is the, the answer? If you replace every there plank on it... It's a paradox. No, 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 no. Please, there's got to be. What's the answer? <laughs> this is so why this. people keep chewing on it. You're hedging. You're hedging. Uh, you don't want to take yeah. a stand on this. I mean, for there's what do you different think? ways of looking at it, and that's and that's it's not a dodge. It the it's in the eye of the beholder. So ah. if if your if your goal and the thing you care about with that particular vehicle mm -hmm. is its continued existence, its journey its continuity, its connection to the source is more important than the physical, is it the same object, like metaphysically speaking. And I, I, I got a lot of this by speaking with a professor from the University of Michigan. Great part about living in a college town is I emailed uh, a metaphysics and aesthetics professor from the philosophy department at the University of Michigan. And she was, her name is Dr. Megan Fairchild. And she was more than thrilled to talk with me. And she, she was really exuberant she was like classic cars are such a rich intersection of this question yeah um and i was i was geeked definitely to be able to like talk about something you know kind of cool and high-minded about cars yeah you did you included a lot of quotes from her in that piece it was really interesting you know i uh, uh you can make fun of me for this but i didn't know what metaphysics meant i thought it was a branch of physics and i looked it up and i found no it's a branch of philosophy <laughs> That makes a whole lot of sense. It is, yeah. It was it was a really fun conversation. I mean, and you you just have to enter it with the notion that there isn't an answer, but that in the process of sort of dredging up all of these thought patterns and ways of looking at it, that you can come away like with a richer understanding of the subject matter. Um, and that's I don't know. that's I what mean, I hope people get from the story. Yeah, I mean. This is something, like I said, it, it, you chew on it. Like you said, there's no black and white answer. I'm aware of that. I'm just kidding. 
And that was why we sort of devoted that whole issue to the thing. And we had people saying they like it new. With we patina. don't want to touch. Yeah, with the, what we called patina. What I'm with trying to get at saying. is driver quality cars. And, uh, you know, it, 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 once you get into the Ferrari realm, we're talking different things. But, you know, you also included Miles Collier in there. And he... He runs a museum in Florida called the Revs Institute that has, mm-hmm. um, I mean, really a collection of some of the best unrestored or original cars in the world. And if I he heard me say that, he'd probably like, no, 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 they're not original. They're only original yeah. ones. Now they wear the history. He was adamant about that. And, yeah. and I don't think anybody has uh, devoted more thought and ink to this question um, and wrote questions a about like it, it than Miles, yeah. the archaeological automobile, which is... Honestly, one of the most interesting car books I've ever read. Is that it, right? It's, you read it. It's, it's a big I book. Read like, I read five chapters of it, and my head was spinning, but I was loving it. It was it was really, really I cool. had to keep looking up too many words, so it slowed me down. <laughs> this illustrates the difference between me and you. In like an absolute nutshell. You're like, metaphysics got to be a physics discipline, right? Totally. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it's super go? cool. He, he is of the mind um, that all restoration is fiction yeah that every form that the the second you're done with you know the paint dries on the car as you're finished it or finished with it or the second the car rolls off the production line it is in a the the process of degradation from its original state yeah it is is immediately begins and he favors and and most values um these kind of time capsule cars because they they have a unique value in their rarity because they're just there aren't many like them that are preserved in all uh unmodified but not unmarred condition you know time takes its toll but mm-hmm. they serve as examples for future restorations of other cars um but there are other types of restorations a lot of time these sort of happen over a period of many years and in each period, let's say in the 70s and then in the 80s and then the 90s, they use the tools, methods, and uh, experience that is available to them in their time. And mm. you have a single car that goes through what what Collier calls an anonymizing restoration or a serial restoration, mm. where mm. it goes yeah, through yeah. these ebbs and flows of transformations. And you could say that at the end of it, like, well, that's, you know, that's not a Jaguar you type anymore. It's had so many things done to it. And his take is is uh, more that, well, each of those things makes that car an individual. It speaks to its specific history. And that is the thing that distinguishes it from, you know, the the VIN of the car that was right next to it on the production line. That makes that car an individual. And that means that oh, it's, a, it's, a, right. it's, a, it's a unique but it's like, car. It, it, it gets a little Even deeper because then an object, object. an object could be an individual. You're sort of, sort yeah. of um, uh, uh, layering on human qualities to it. Absolutely. I mean, and that's 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 definitely what I and personally draw most from cars is they're they're objects and they're industrial and they're mass produced, but like they're tools. You know, we care about them so much, it so deeply. Me. I know it. it like it brings punch. people in. I've been in. I've been all over the country and all over the world talking with people who I have with whom I have nothing in common except we love cars and it's like we're best friends immediately and I just I don't know of many things in the world like that and and yeah. that's why I don't think of cars as mass produced industrial objects there's I'm something human there it it cracks me up that my lizard brain um is is tied to cars like where did that come from <laughs> 
And I love these topics. You know, we tried to cover it. Doing in that some book self-reflection. Uh, I don't. I don't self-reflect, uh, Eric, I'm an engineer. Um, <laughs> I think what's funny is um, this fascinates me to no end, and we we really did try to answer it in the book behind me, which is this. Um, I'm going a little off topic, and I'll get back. But I love when I'm racing cars, and I'm I've got this. Let's call it a, a version of an Iron Man suit. I'm wearing twenty five hundred, three thousand pounds of car around me. And mm-hmm. somebody else is next to me wearing the same thing. And just by their way their car moves, my brain can make uh, predictions about where they're going to be in the near future and how they're going to behave in the near future and what they're going to do if I do this. And I, I am fascinated that our brains have the capability to do that. And also, you know, our, the human body can run at some miles per hour, 5, 10, 20, yet we can get in a car traveling at 100 meaning we have this data coming into our senses at a mm-hmm. rate that our body can't take us, yet we can process it. Yeah, your brain like calibrates to that. It can calibrate it, and then it can act on it. I find that absolutely amazing. And all this is, yeah, part of cars, part of my lizard brain is gets really something about them. Is, it's probably one of these mysteries I'll be talking about all day, just like I am a metaphysicist, right? Is that That's kind of what that means, sure. am I? Sure. I could yeah. put that on my card. Why not? Yeah, you also got into what I thought was really interesting is this idea of a continuation car. If the yeah. car came from the same factory, right? The uh, Let's take a Jaguar D-Type, built in the mid-50s. Beautiful car. They won Le Mans with this car. Jaguar won Le Mans. It's a six-cylinder kind of sports racing thing. I want to say, the number doesn't matter, but let's say they built around 70 of them and the factory burned down. And mm-hmm. they had... I think around another 20 serial numbers that they'd planned to build. So sometime in the past two decades, Jaguar said, you know, we can make some money here. Let's start building the D types again. Yeah. Build the cars that we didn't build the cars. We didn't. Thank you. And that was a question you asked. Is that a D type or not? What's your answer? Yeah. Uh, your answer is yes. I think, I I think, I, I, I think no, I think, you think no, I think it's, no, I think it's it's evocative of a D-type. I think it's... Mm, what does that mean? It is a D-type if you take out everything historical. Hmm. If you have any attachment to like, this car was here back when, and this thing has survived to now. Oh, so this is, it, it's there for an if experience. If that's what you enjoy about cars, yeah. if, if purely what you enjoy is like the precision of the machinery, the, you know, the, the performance, the the experience of driving it, all of that stuff, I think a continuation car is great. I mean, I have no, there's nothing, there's nothing bad or wrong about it. But it, to say that it has any, like, actual connection to history, I think is a stretch. Uh, and also, you can't drive them on public roads. Yeah, so. I, you know, back to Miles, <laughs> he has such a struggle. And it's, fat, you know, I've been down there at the Revs Institute where they restore these things. And, you know, they have very, they have several cars that are very significant race history. And yeah. some, you know, like the Gurney Eagle, I think they have the one that won at Spa. That was the Formula One car that was built by Dan Gurney's shop. He's a hero of mine because I've got a Dan Gurney sticker behind me. And driven by him, won the Spa Grand Prix in 1967. That car, I think it kind of survived. But he's got all these Porsche sports racing cars that either the roof was cut off later or the livery changed or 
it was sold from the factory to somebody else. And these cars won the Targa Florio or Le Mans, these kind of cool old races. And then when I've talked to him, he always says like, well, it's got to be restored, but where do you restore it to? It's most Yeah, at what point race. in history? Yeah, when it left this. the factory. And, you know, he hires these um, these art restorers that come in with these little toothpicks and picks and chip away to try and see what, what cue the paint was from way yeah. back. I mean, he, he had a really, really interesting insight where he was talking yeah, about, like, does. now when you're restoring a, a, an Alpha 8C, a pre-war Alpha 8C, not the Competizione Viper adjacent thing, um, he... He said you can't do it without bringing your own perspective as a person from the 2020s to yeah. a car from the 1930s. Like you sure. look at it and you're like, this car's cost $15 million. And no matter what you do, you're going to be treating it as such. But when mm-hmm. those cars were built, they were products that Alfa Romeo needed to build to be able to continue business in a couple mm-hmm. months. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they gave special attention to the things that the customer could see. You know, they made sure everything the customer could see looked really good. But if you, you know, popped open, you know, one of the hoods, you know, vertical, you know, one of those like vertical latch hoods and you looked at the quality of the paint or the treatment or, you know, a weld or or whatever, it wouldn't look so nice because they weren't really giving it that kind of attention. They were kind of just banging it out. And when you go to do a restoration, do you do it perfectly or do you like try to give it the effect or the appearance of carelessness, like distressed jeans or something like that. You know, it's like, that's really hard to replicate is kind of his point. And I I think he's right. I mean, to try to like give it this affectation is like more bullshit than just making it. It's not authentic. It's And like to try to make it quote unquote authentic is like totally inauthentic. It's a trap. It's like bullshit. And, and, Ultimately, you you just got to do what what you think is closest as the as the person who's Eric, doing this restoration that that you think is is most meaningful. Answer me this question: So there are people that get paid to just like think about this all day, like Dr. Fairchild, who I interviewed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think she also has to like teach and grade papers and, okay, and publish yeah, and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's fundamentally. Yeah. yeah, it's cool. I mean, it was, by it the way, was really it, cool. It, it brings to mind, uh, you know, our, my guest today is I've interviewed Mikhail Haggerty, who was, uh, he's very much a philosopher at heart. Next time he comes down to Ann Arbor, we have to get those two together. He would, he can speak to this stuff. Really, Next time you see him, you have to speak to him. He's obviously the CEO of our company. He hired me eight years ago. Super duper car guy. I'm really talking to, I'm really looking forward to talk to him next. Uh, but the one thing I wanted to say to you or suggest to you after that article, I, I watched this, um, this Ferrari, this 1.9 million pile of crumpled old metal uh-huh. and someone's going to probably pay the factory to rebuild it and it'll be rebuilt. And then the, the community will decide if it's real or not. And what fascinates me is what, what you said very in the beginning was it's in the eye of the beholder and there will be two or three super influential concourse judges, Ferrari historians, I don't know who they are, but if if a few of those get behind it and say, yeah, this is the real deal because it does have enough percentage of the original metal, it will be considered... Or they, the they use the right materials yeah. or they use it's the right real processes or, or you know, whatever. Or not. So it, if it gets blessed by these people, that owner's golden. But if it doesn't, for whatever reason, 
they're screwed because then it'll be it'll be tagged for the rest of the car's existence, right? I love that. Part uh, of it. I don't know the answer to that. I I, I don't. I just um, answered for you. We don't. <laughs> I I I. I am fascinated by like the hive mind process that makes these kind of decisions. Like everyone's like, yes, shit nods their heads. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> like I don't, I, it, it's just like such a weird social phenomenon. It um, is. I love it. And you'd like to think that somebody who has like almost $2 million to burn on a complete wrecked pile of garbage, like yeah. already knows the right people and knows the right processes. And it's familiar enough to be like, I'm pretty confident I can get this done and have it pass muster. But sure. yeah, and like you said, you know, stranger things have happened. You never really know. Um, but yeah, yeah it's like, it, yeah. I think it's very easy to find this very unrelatable. Yeah. Because it, it it's, be, it's, it's, it's in the so, stratosphere. It's yeah. so, and there's elements of it that are like not what people like about the car hobby. It, it kind it's, of, it represents. Well, a, yeah, yeah, it delves into the art world, which you're very comfortable in. It delves into the archaeological world. I think what, what. It just delves into huge sums of money. Huge sums of money. I mean, I think our tact was always, and, and this is why that patine idea, um, why I wanted to do it was I just wanted to celebrate used cars and let people celebrate the warts and the uh, the wear that has come with all the memories. Aaron really, Aaron Robinson, who wrote that piece, it's on Hagerty.com. I thought really summed up that well. It's like, does. You know, in the in the car world, we go to car shows, and the, the the ones with the best shine get the trophies, or the ones with the lowest miles and are never used get the highest prices, and they get a lot of attention. We're guilty of this, so I just um, yeah, I want to take a moment to celebrate the cars that are used because that's what we all own. And the car and the shows I go to, people always yeah. gravitate to the car that is a little beat up and has stories. Yeah. yeah, and I know like my dad has a has a '62 slash '63 Morgan four four. And he mm. bought it like right around the time I was born. Mm. And oh, wow. I've, it's been with my family like my whole life. And oh, he's like kind of talked about, should I, should I paint it? It's, it's old English white and it's totally cracked and pitted. And, and he's like, should I paint it navy blue? And me and my brother and my sister were all just like, do not touch that thing. Oh, like, wow, it is, really? We, yeah. like I can't, there's photos of it like all over my house and my brother's house. Oh my yeah, like, you gotta leave it. Like, I agree. We just like can't part with the 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 appearance of it the, sure. the way we know it hmm. and so he, well that's he sweet I th that yeah there's there's a lot of aspects it's a good place to end the conversation so um eric thank you thanks for that piece yeah, everybody my pleasure. Go to thanks for having me. read it and um thank you for listening i hope you enjoy my interview with mckeel haggerty just remember everybody never stop driving I am here with Mikhail Haggerty, who is a very hard guy to describe in one or two clauses. Um, the easy one is that Mikhail is the CEO of Haggerty. But what I want to communicate is his near 40-year career building a company to serve automotive enthusiasts. Uh, the company started with a simple goal of ensuring the fun and collectible cars that are driven on the weekends. It now offers a suite of products and services to help folks enjoy the hobby from automotive media to membership programs to events and now a marketplace that provides a trusted place to buy and sell cars. Uh, McKeel is also a judge at several automotive concours and a car collector who still owns his first restoration project, a 1967 Porsche 911 that he bought as a teenager. 
His company's mission, as stated on the website, is to build a company that can fund the purpose to save driving and car culture for future generations. So certainly someone we want to talk to as a Never Stop Driving podcast. So uh, McKeel sits at this interesting intersection of car enthusiasm, business, history, and a shared love of driving. So hello, McKeel. Thank you so much hello, for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I want to get, we're right at the start of 2024. Lots of change. What are you excited about in the automotive world this year? Well, we are at this intersection. You used the word intersection about me. Yeah. Um, I think the car world is at this inter- interesting intersection of, of technology and enthusiasm because, mm-hmm. you know, clearly it's, there's this big dialogue going on about how, what, where we're going to land or how quickly we're going to land in an electrified vehicle world. Mm-hmm. And yet, some of the some of our favorite car companies are producing some of the greatest you know traditional internal combustion engine cars ever you know powered by great engines more efficient engines For great sure. transmissions like everything is just like perfect the brakes the handling it's they, just and they it's, run forever they run forever yeah. the quality is good mm-hmm. it's remarkable yeah. you know i remember when i first came into kind of the professional side of the car world and people i was pointed to the golden age of like the muscle car era in America as like the end of an era. Like that was it. There was just some really cool stuff built then, different level of performance. And you really have to kind of look in the last decade and say, are you kidding me? Because it's just insane. It's a golden era. It is. We are, we're in the era. So super fun times to be a car guy. Yeah, I agree with you. And and I, I see some of these electric vehicles and I get really excited because I can tell that some really enthusiastic creative engineers built them. And, you know, uh, I think to a lot of people, electric car, we think pod, something Mm. out of the Jetsons. And that's not proven to be the case. They're still making these, you know, really beautiful designs, really engaging to drive and features we didn't really even think about. So I feel like I'm more optimistic than a lot in our world. Yeah, I don't understand the negativity. Yeah, I I really don't. Mm-hmm. It 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 feels um, largely unfounded. I I have an electric car. I have a Taycan mm-hmm. Porsche Taycan Turbo S. I drove today. Mm-hmm. Drive it. Drove it all last winter. I'll drive it all winter. It's it's a great car. The range is not great, I guess, by mm-hmm. modern standards. But I don't need to go anywhere, three four hundred miles. I don't. I yeah. My commutes are short. My drives are short. Mm-hmm. And the thing just has you know epic epic performance and it feels like a real car it doesn't feel like a pod it doesn't feel like anything it's mm-hmm. just it's just it's just unbelievably fast and it feels really cool so I, I don't understand the negative energy I think the negative energy is it feels uh, not organic change mm-hmm. it feels like um, a force change and and I when people say what you're talking about they feel negative I I bring it back to the when the EPA came out with the Clean Air Act in the 70s and I wasn't alive back then, but I imagine there was a lot of hand wringing. Yeah, you were. weren't you alive back in the seventies? Well, kind like of. Three. You were a little. <laughs> yes, I wasn't thinking about. <laughs> okay, well, I just freaked me out there. There. Uh, so, um, you know, we had Aaron. He did a piece on the 50th anniversary of the EPA, yeah. and uh, one of the things I, I wanted him to make sure that he communicated he did was that we wouldn't have 700 horsepower demons without that act. Because that was really the law that forced the electronic fuel injection, the catalytic converters, and you couldn't have an engine that can run reliably that with that kind of power mm-hmm. without electronic controls. Mm-hmm. So there's always a period of a discomfort, 
And that may take a decade. And that's what this one's looking like. I, I don't know. I, I also think, look, we, we live in a weird world where people pick the technology they like, and sometimes it's a little capricious. Um, and What do you mean capricious? Well, you know, I think we'd much rather have a new iPhone than to go back to our Motorola flip phone. Both of them, you know, one has a lot more features. It's a lot slicker and it does a lot of things. I don't think anybody pines for a golden era when we all used outhouses instead of indoor plumbing. Right, right. And so, you know, for whatever reason in the car world, there are certain of us that, you know, we we do have this sort of golden ageism. And, and I do too. Like, I like generally vintage cars. I generally do. I don't have a lot of new cars. I don't aspire to have a lot of new cars, but I'm not, I don't, again, coming back to my Porsche Taycan, I don't sit there and I don't have like feelings about it. I just think, wow, pretty, pretty cool car. That's kind of human nature though, isn't it? To, um, I guess what you're saying is to, we forget how good we have it. Oh, right. Yeah. So you mentioned Dodge Demon. Right. I have one of those. I have number 35 and I don't really know entirely what the purpose of the car is. Um, you know, we were kind of part of launching it with Dodge. It was super lift cool. The front it lifts the front wheels. <laughs> I think that's just it to set some sort of record. And it's super fun to drive. It gets a lot of eyeballs amongst people who know what it is. And, um, you know, it's just, it's an amazing car. I, we have a, one of the cars we have in the, in the Haggerty kind of driving collection is 2013. Uh, one of the Shelby Mustang GT500s. That's that supercharged motor. Crazy one. 662 yeah, yeah. horsepower. And I just don't think people understand like how amazing that thing was. When when you compare it to like, you know, the era of Vipers, like kind of leading up to that point, which everybody, you know, maybe had a love-hate relationship with or whatever. And then you just like, see like, here this thing is like a drop the mic kind of yeah. Mustang that is pretty hard to keep straight on the road. Um, it's and, amazing it got yeah. out the door. Yes. I mean, Incredible. it spins the tires. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, it's fun in car line with my daughter, I can tell you, <laughs> at school. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a total drift machine. So I, I share your optimism and knowing the people we know in the car business, they're, a lot of them are there because they love cars and it's not a job. And what amazes me is, you know, the car business is really hard and it's very capital intensive and it's really cyclical. It makes tons of money and it loses tons of money. Yet the people that seem to rise up to the top more often than not are car people. You know, you think about Akio Toyota, even him, racism. Right. Jim Farley raced on the weekends. Mark Royce, this big car person. I mean, it's sort of like across the board, which is really interesting to me that even though those companies are really mature, the people that get are running them love the product. Maybe that's not surprising, but. Well, thank goodness they do. Yeah. I know. Every time I, I'm in contact with Jim Farley, I'm like, thank God. Thank <laughs> God it's you. You know, just stay. Stay there. <laughs> yeah. And he's celebrating the Camaro leaving the uh, field. You know, it sort of leaves it open to him and the Mustang, which he's, yeah. seems like they're doubling down and making all those Mustang versions, which is super duper fun. I'd like to switch a little bit because we haven't talked about this in a while. Um, I am amazed to be sitting here six years after the autonomous car bomb dropped. And I was thinking about, I just wrote in my newsletter not too long ago that GM bought Cruise in 2016. And along the way, they it's a couple billion here, a couple billion there to keep that company alive. And there does not seem to be any obvious return or business to that 
technology. And I was also looking at Flint, Michigan, which in 1900 was still making horse-drawn carriages. And just one decade later was a complete automotive manufacturing mecca with GM, all the stuff there, spark plugs. In one decade, before many houses had electricity. Mm. And so what does that tell you about autonomous tech? Is this a public perception problem? Is this a technology problem? Is it both? Where do you, where do you? Um, my observation is I think the, the early hype, and it was hype, mm-hmm. um, overshot what the capabilities would be. You know, I think that the kind of Moore's law, you know, exponential acceleration was interesting, but it really wasn't, you know, they were just a little bit ahead of their time. Mm-hmm. I also am not sure what they that they adequately explained what the purpose would be. If you're gonna if you have to build a business out of it, that means it's going to attract a lot of people to want to buy it. You know, you're gonna be able to hook them into yeah, it. Yeah. Um, there have to be incentives to do so. I mean, you look at, you know, the incredible success of Tesla, mm-hmm. you know, with electric cars and, you know, let's set aside their their own self-driving ambitions, which I, I mean, I just think are reckless. I, I mean, bluntly, I, th- I think they're the, reckless. Yeah, the tech's good, but the way they market, it's reckless. Yeah, yeah it's it's really reckless. Yeah, I and mean, they're just sure. they're cutting around everything that's you know the the rest of the auto industry would never dream of trying to break for those sure. kind of rules. Yeah. Um. And look, I'm not, it's not like I'm the biggest rule follower in the world. I just think like those things are in place to protect the public, and I don't think we need those things to drive themselves. Um, but that was like part of the promise. I think so they overpromised there. And I also think that they didn't have the benefit of kind of the new era of AI, which is, you know, large language models mm-hmm. are like a hair's breadth away uh, from large behavioral models, which probably will solve more of the self-driving problems. Yeah. But I also think that, you know, the the purpose form hasn't been well articulated. If what if what they're really trying to explain is because I don't think you can make convenience and safety and cost and all of these things all the arguments all at once. It feels like they were trying to throw a lot of mm-hmm. uh, arguments at at the thing. And if you just said, look, there are a million people actively driving trucks today, and it's the largest sing or whatever ten million or million, and uh, we'd like to replace them because they it'd be more reliable if we didn't have to have them or taxi drivers, Uber drivers. And they're going to be coming to a city near you. And that's what I've I've said all over the country. Sure. Like autonomous vehicles will be coming to a big city near you. Um, and should you expect to see them in Alaska or Montana or driving up Highway 1 anytime soon? Probably not. I don't think they necessarily belong there. But So I think it's hard. I think they were a little ahead of their own hype messaging. And, um, you know, I think they have to probably reestablish what the purpose is for. Yeah, I'm just amazed. I, you know, a few years ago, I always used this sort of like um, all the reasons you, you mentioned about how far the tech's going to go. I used the, uh, I just kind of used Manhattan, the island of Manhattan. It's terrible to drive in. It's clogged. If any place could use some sort of, even with the, you know, it's got good public transit, but it's still clogged. I would just tell myself, do I think you're going to be able to self-drive a car in Manhattan in 2030? Yes or no? And five years ago, I thought, oh, no way. This will be greater for everybody. But now, in 2024, I'm like, no, I think we'll still be driving in Manhattan in 2030. Do you have any sense of that? You think I'm I think mistaken? I'm, I think, I think I'm with you. Mm-hmm. And But I also know that 
I haven't driven myself in Manhattan in a long time because why, it's why would you? Yeah. It's a disaster. I mean, it's <laughs> totally stressful. Right. And, you know, why would you put yourself through it? And and with any of the vintage cars that I have, like, they'd all melt down before you'd get totally. three blocks in them. So, you know, other than a 911. And then the 911 would do just fine. I did actually, after we took the company public, um, oh, yeah. I, I actually, so... Anniversaries December sixth, two thousand twenty-one. So you know, we're just two years, just about now. And um, I uh, shortly after ringing the bell, I I did an interview with a good friend of ours uh, for the New York Times, and I was driving a vintage you know manual BMW in Manhattan while trying to do the interview. And I was a lot sweatier driving in Manhattan <laughs> than I was ringing the bell. I can tell you what. Yeah, when I was growing up in New Jersey in the eighties, we would go to Manhattan to drive. Because it was still the tail end of the lawlessness from the 70s. Oh, yeah. And you knew cops had way better things to do than to stop speeding drivers. For sure. Everybody would fly around. But, yeah, I'm still fascinated that this, uh, that the autonomous has fizzled out as much. One of the things I wonder about is the, what it's going to be expected, how it's going to be expected to perform. And what does safer than humans mean? And when I think about you know, my kids walking around a city, would I want it populated by AVs like with their technology today or people? And if I'm just thinking about their safety, I mean, I want the AVs. I mean, I, I, my hunch is they're already safer than humans, but the bar, the perception bar is so unrealistically unre- high, <laughs> right? We saw that accident in San Francisco. It's terrible, of course, but the reaction was we're shutting this down. And if that's the bar, I don't know how they're ever going to clear that. And that may take a generation before the next generation is more comfortable with a little bit of imperfection. Right. Well, it does. You don't have to drive around very long with human drivers all around to see an <laughs> awful lot of imperfection. Exactly. Right? Yes. Um, and uh, you know, I think I actually wonder if, if maybe drivers are slightly better than they were about a decade ago. But that's a. You think so? A, well, I think that. The quality of some of the driving schools actually like in rural areas has improved because you know, when I grew up, I already knew how to drive long before I showed up at driver's training. But there were a lot of people. It was just like some teacher in the school parking lot afterwards. True. Yeah. And it was just sort of, you know, go out there and be safe, kids. You might want to buckle up. Um, so, Well, at least in Ann Arbor where I am, I think third of the people are uh, they've smoked a lot of pot before they got behind the wheel and they just will sit there. But I think that's going to be the perception problem, you know, because they always used to say like, well, how are you going to insure these things? Who's at fault? And I remember thinking, well, that's a big problem. But the- Yeah, the, I will tell you the on, the, on, the, on the autonomous side, the insurance problem is very real and it's very big and no one knows how to solve it because, oh, you know, wow. you go, the insurance industry that, that I work in is designed to insure the human beings that own or drive cars, mm-hmm. not to insure the company that built it. And- Mm. The, it's two different types of, it's a, it sounds kind of obvious when I say it, but that's just the way it, it doesn't work that way. One is like a warranty mm-hmm. on the car mm-hmm. and one is, you know, something that the, the driver buys. And there's no mechanism to do that? Yet? There is no mechanism. And in fact, the way that insurance is both constructed, sold, rated, everything, there's a huge wall between how those two things are sold. So, I don't even, like, and I don't even know anybody trying to figure out 
how to solve that problem right now. Well, you travel in those tech circles. What's everybody saying about it now? Are they saying this is a money pit with no obvious return? Or are they saying it's just going to take a little bit longer? What are you hearing? Yeah, I think I think what I'm hearing is money pit where maybe there's a return out there, but it's the same thing with electric vehicles. I mean, we know that some of our friends that we've talked about in the automotive world are struggling to sell some of them yeah. that they have. They're expensive. I don't think the full story about the total the total um, environmental impact of the building of current technology electric right. vehicles yeah, yeah. Um, has been told. You know, I mean, I've heard for a high performance battery pack that the amount of ore that has to go into, you know, building one of those battery packs would just blow your mind. You know, and yeah. you know, huge amounts of waste, huge amounts of energy go into mining. But you know, boy, we can sure feel good because we plugged in our car instead of you know, going to the gas station. So I just think there's a, the, there's opacity around the truth um, with, you know, how safe an autonomous vehicle is, how efficient really, you know, from a total, you know, lifespan is a electric vehicle. You know, to me, I think people just have to kind of, you know, do their best research and, you know, kind of go that way. For the, for the efficiency crowd, the one, you know, people who like genuinely in their heart of hearts feel like, I want to do good for the world and I want to, you know, I need a vehicle, I need to own a vehicle, but I'm really concerned about the environment, you know, set aside the AV problem, get a plug-in hybrid. That's the deal. Put a solar panel on the roof of your house. hundred percent. I mean, Akio Toyota said that. I, I, you know, it's one of those technologies that really enables some, uh, magical is the wrong word, but some hope for switch to renewable energy grid. Mm. And um, I heard this once, um, Somebody said, well, that sounds like the hope strategy, which really isn't a strategy, right? That's not a strategy. And, no. that's, that's, that is hope. It's a dream. That's what it sounds like we're on. For and sure. We, well, and, I think what everybody, you know, look, an awful lot of business people have, you know, failed with the idea that if I can just sell enough of them, I can figure out how to do it profitably. Hmm. And, um, you know, there was that early, and I can't remember exactly, I'm butchering it, but I'm paraphrasing around Elon Musk, which is, sell an electric sports car, take the money from that and build a cheaper one, take the money from that one, build a cheaper one. And then you're finally in, in the mode. You know, it's like they say, like who makes money in a hotel? Usually the third or fourth owner of the mm. hotel building. Yeah. First owner loses their shirt. Right. By about the fourth one, once a bunch of people have lost their shirt, sure. it starts becoming profitable. And that's probably where we are. Well, I think it, it sort of positions us in a good place because what I've noticed over the past five years is that as the cars change, the interest, the value, the care in the older cars is, is rising. And gosh, you know, what did, what did we say? There's potentially like 65 million, what we might call fun cars that have been built throughout history. Right. At, at least, at least. Yeah. And, least. um, you know, we track the, the value of these things pretty closely. And they're not really depreciating anymore. I mean, it's kind of amazing. There's been a big switch in the last decade, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, what we, first of all, you know, what counts as a quote unquote vintage car is not as old as we think anymore. For sure. Uh, you who were maybe three or four in the 70s and mm -hmm. I was eight or nine, so I'm not that <laughs> many years ahead of you, is that, you know, now we're talking about a lot of cars from the, you know, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. And yeah, they, they don't have the latest Bluetooth or whatever, but 
it like they're cool to somebody and they went through some sort of depreciation curve and they bottomed out and they're now like ripe for somebody to own for enjoyment. And that's our world. Uh, you know, I kind of think of when you use words like archaeology, I remember hearing somewhere that, you know, archaeology isn't about the stuff that was lost. It's the stuff that remains from mm -hmm. the past. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that in this world where so many things around us are manufactured and they all look the same and they're kind of disposable, that having something in your life that has a little bit of age to it and mm -hmm. a little bit of value and a little bit of kind of character that makes life interesting. It probably makes you more interesting to others. You know, it's a, it's a story. It's, it's a little bit of an anti-consumerism story and, you know, almost it just fits my personality. I know it fits the personality of a lot of people. You know, I, I tell people all the time, look, I live in a world where cars have meaning. Mm. They have value, but they have meaning. Mm. You know, there totally. are a bunch of cars I can show you that, you know, we still own. You talk about my first car and it's like, that is, you know, that, that car is story. my car, but it's also like a story of my love of my dad. Mm. And that was the language we had together. He didn't play sports. He didn't entertain. We did minimal vacations. He worked on cars in the garage. So if you wanted to know dad, you were in the garage. That was totally it. Totally get it. Totally get it. Yeah. And thank God it was a Porsche 911S and not, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you something got worse. I got really lucky. I had a 55 Ford, uh, so yeah. you won that one. Yeah. Well, that leads me to, uh, you talked about like this, the part of your story, this whole car is, but the thing I think gets forgotten is this, this book you turned me on to many years ago called Saving Sailing. Mm. And um, that was a powerful book. Mm. And it talked about the, the chartered versus chosen experience, mm -hmm. which are weird words, but I somehow remembered them. And the chartered experience is a predetermined experience. Mm. You get on, a, on the roller coaster, that's chartered. You know the experience you're going to get. You go to a movie, it's prescribed. This is the experience. This is what you're going to feel. And these old cars you were talking about you own is, is such a ripe opportunity for the chosen experience. You don't really know how it's going to go. And um, I just really believe that's a way richer way to spend your time if you can. And, you know, I don't know where else you get that for a cheaper value than what an old car does. Well, I think I, I think that idea of you combine a car that requires you to slow down to its pace mm -hmm. rather than for you to just constantly be jamming it up to your pace, whatever that is. I got to get somewhere and it's got to work. And, you know, people always ask me, why don't you ever take you know, one of the vintage cars out to dinner at night. I'm like, well, I don't know if it's going to start after dinner and I don't know if the lights work. And they're like, what? You don't know? I'm like, well, they worked it yesterday. Work, yeah. They worked yesterday, yeah, yeah, but yeah. what if they don't on right. the way home? And I've certainly had it happen. And, you know, that idea of, it just kind of connects to the idea that there's more chosen aspects to it or a little bit of a wandering um, I was talking to a, a, an interesting car collector yesterday who had a practice I've never heard of. You, you're going to get a, a kick out of this. Like, takes the road trip to one bigger level, which is he will go on road trips with his son with the intention, and he would let his son choose north, south, east, west. Yep. You just pick the direction. And the only thing he knows is that they're not coming home with the same car they left with. That's brilliant. So they go someplace, and they're kind of researching, and they drive someplace, and they trade the car out. They trade it. Yeah. And we'll probably exchange some money. And in what their, one of their favorite trips is they came home, they had three different cars during the course of this trip. So the car they drove home with, like a week later, was the third car. 
Oh, you got to put me in contact with that yes. guy. That's a great piece. Amazing. Yeah, it, it, when you say that, it reminds me, I also restored a 9-11, a 69. And the first trip, I, I took it on foolishly. It was, I drove around the block a few times, and I'm like, you know, this is good. I'm, I could drive this to Charlotte. Ready to run. Let's go. Yes, I- <laughs> <laughs> so I'm in Kentucky, and the the vibration in the front end so bad, I'm pretty sure I didn't tighten the wheel bearings in the yeah. front. Hadn't checked what tools Nothing. Really rural Kentucky because Eastern Kentucky where the roads are really good. I'm by myself, but there's not exactly an ecosystem of Porsche mechanics. So I pull off in this gravel road and um, I, I got the car jacked up on that cheap jack. I realized I don't have the right tools and this guy stops and it, it, it turned into this, this whole sort of affair. He called all his buddies, his son, everybody came over. They brought me the tools I fixed it, and I learned that my favorite thing. He said, where, where are you going? And I told him I wanted to take this road before it got dark. And he says, oh, yeah, that's got a lot of kissy heinies. And I was like, what's that? <laughs> and I said, what did you say? He said, kissy heinie. And I was like, I don't know what that means. He's like, it's a kiss, kissy, kissy heinie. It's a curves that turn back along themselves more than 100. So uh, more than 180 uh, degrees. So you can see your behind uh, as you get around. Oh, you kiss your hiney. And then. Um, Especially apropos in an early 9-11. It's yes. totally perfect. <laughs> yes. I was like, that's the best thing I ever heard. And then I, I lost his, his contact info and I wrote in the magazine, hey, could somebody contact me with this guy? Here's his photo. And amazing. Like I got a voicemail. And it was another great one. He's like, hey, Larry, this is Randy. You still got your broken up 911. <laughs> <laughs> you deserve that. And I just thought, <laughs> oh, this couldn't be better. And that's the sort of unexpected uh, problems and solutions. And I don't know where else you get stuff like that with no risk. You don't. Well, you know, you mentioned that book, Saving Sailing. That book changed my life and really set us on this yeah. purpose of, you know, oh, did us it? having a purpose of saving driving because mm. I grew up a boater. I mean, my family, mm. we were in the wooden boating insurance business before we got in the right. in this vintage car world. And it still blows me away as a boater, you know, inland lake stuff. And I've done a little bit of ocean sailing and, and ocean boating is when, when you take a kid mm. who's only been in a chartered experience environment yeah, 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 and you say, where do you want to go? Where do you, where do you just point in a direction? No idea, right? And you can, you can go wherever you want. And that it's just such a different experience, that yeah. idea of that extra measure of freedom. And then, you know, in a sailboat, it's especially cool because, you know, you got to, you kind of, you're up to the whim of nature, whether you're going to go that direction <laughs> or not. And um, that's the same thing with vintage cars. And I yeah. think that's why I like them. So, you know, to me, and we've talked about this before, is I like the idea of agency, you know, this idea, and I think that's its agency is a little bit of what all of our electronic devices take away. Convenience eliminates a lot of agency, which is I have to figure it out myself. Yeah, yeah. You know, my wife and I will play the game, you know, all the time when we're trying to remember a name. Like, don't look it up. Don't look it up. We got to use our memories, you know. <laughs> yes. And so we'll sit there and rack our brains until yeah. we, you know, so remember sure. J.D. Salinger, yeah. you know, whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm, I feel like we're on a, a, a classic car love tour. Um, which is appropriate considering what our passions are. But um, I also find that with, uh, you know, I do a lot of amateur racing, the motorsports world. And um, my son, he likes dirt tracks. So he races these little micro sprints on dirt tracks in Indiana. 
and it's really hard to get the car ready and you got to get everything there. And he's, it's scary to watch the other cars when you get to the track and you're like, holy smokes, am I putting my kid in that? What am I thinking? Then you watch him and you're like, oh, he's only 13. He can do this. Amazing. But the last race of the season, I think he was pretty close to the front and the car broke. Mm. And I watched him coast to the infield, which is where they parked the dead ones. And he is pounding the uh, steering wheel. Uh. He's so mad. And a part of me was like, well, I'm the chief mechanic. I really blew it. <laughs> but the other part of me was like, oh, how great. He gets to experience that emotion. Mm. And it's a disappointing emotion. Mm. But I think that's, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, you have to learn how to deal with it. So it's all these little things that these cars give us that I feel like people don't recognize. Maybe they do subconsciously and maybe we're just verbalizing it, but that's one of the many things that I find so rich about it. Well, learning to deal with disappointment. One of my favorite photographs I, I have in our office is a photo of Sterling Moss trying to push a car of his into the pits. And it was oh. one of these, you know, European races where, you know, you can't accept assistance or whatever. And he pushed and he pushed and he pushed. And the photo is shot and shot by our mutual friend, Denise McCluggage, who mm -hmm. was in a female American racer, but not allowed to race in Europe. So when she was in Europe, she would photograph the races mm -hmm. and she snapped this photo like right when he gave up. This was a little bit wow. of an incline and he finally did his last push mm -hmm. and he just couldn't quite get it over this, this little incline to get it into the pits. And that yeah. was it. End of his day, end of the weekend. And um, I talked <sighs> to him about that and he just said, yeah, that was, that was the last gasp. And you always have to remember, you know, for all those great racers, they had a lot of days that, you know, they went home with nothing. Nothing. And, yeah. um, you know, that's what you want to teach your kids is dealing with disappointment, dealing with stuff. This summer, I joked with our vintage cars, was the year of running out of gas. And I think it was like <laughs> you being the chief mechanic, I was the chief idiot because I just wasn't being disciplined to keep the cars topped up. And as you know, with vintage cars, you're really not really quite sure whether the gas gauge is working Never at all. Never Yeah. But we had, and it was about the third instance of this, as we were going out to dinner, and it was kind of late, but yeah, it's northern Michigan, so it stays light out here. Mm -hmm. We had an out-of-town house guest piled in. We have a 1928 4.5-liter Bentley, and I just love the sound of this pre-war car puttering along this road, going out to a restaurant. And all of a sudden, I could just, I heard the miss, and I'm like, oh, no. You know, because there is no gas gauge <laughs> on on a 28 Bentley. And I'm like, I knew it. I just pushed it one too many trips too far. And as I, I was coasting, you know, so I sped up because I wanted to coast to a spot. Sure. And Ava, our daughter's like completely embarrassed. Like, again, dad, again, you know, and I'm like, it's gas, it's gas. And so I coasted, in, you know, off the road yeah. into this, in front of this house. I knew whose house it was. Oh wow! And but nobody else did in the car. I'm like, uh, trust me, I'm just I'm just going to go up here and see if I can get some gas. And so soon, and Ava and our guest are sitting out in the car, and I go up there, and sure enough, it's our friend. And it's like, yeah, I got ten gallons of recreational fuel in the back, and do you want a glass of wine? <laughs> and so I go walking down the driveway with like two glasses of rosé. Yeah, perfect. And you know, he's yeah. following me behind me with a gas can with fuel in it, and they're like, do you have? gas in those wine glasses i'm like no it's it's rosé it's you know just this is a neighbor you it's know this is what we do hour. it's cocktail <laughs> hour and uh, so we sat in the by the side of the road and yeah, yeah, admired yeah. the car and had a glass of wine and fueled it up and went on our way that is a uh, chosen experience it's a chosen experience but even if it's an unexpected one
Yeah, the other thing is, um, you know, we were talking about the the value of these cars. What the other thing that's pretty incredible to me is like Model Ts are not worthless. Mm-mm. And yeah. you would think, you know, that's a really car hard car to own, right? Hard car to drive. What do you do with it? They don't go more than thirty miles an hour, but they're still worth a good chunk of change. Like the the oddity of this market is that there's sort of so many people in it that there's a store of value in all this stuff, which is something that. We try and preach a lot. I, I'm I'm kind of amazed at that. Again, what it's what remains, and you know that little bit of value, you know that you know you could, you could drive that Model T. We we have a 15 Model T. Just the last year, the brass radiator cars new, delivered here to our hometown, and I it was about five six summers ago. I decided to use it every day as my commuter car for the month of June. Whoa! And um, you know it's a crank start kind of complicated you kind of you know once you get used to the process the hand start yeah the hand, yeah, the hand start mm-hmm. um and you know you stall the darn thing in the middle of traffic and you're like oh my god i gotta <laughs> climb out into traffic and you're waving people yeah, down yeah, yeah. so you don't stall uh you do whatever it takes to not stall um but yeah there's value in it and there's pleasure and enjoyment and agency and all that stuff so but that 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 the that the interest is continuing Hmm. Uh, that I didn't see, especially in stuff that old. I've, uh, you know, our, our friend Jim Farley. I can't remember what the what the topic was before he was uh, CEO of Ford. We were talking about old cars, and he said at some point nobody wanted a horseless horse drawn carriage. Hmm. And I was like, yeah, makes sense, but we're not really seeing that in the classic car market. If it's got a motor, it's got value. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. You know, and one of my favorite early car events is the London and Brighton Veteran Car Run. Oh, yeah. And the cars are all 1904 and earlier. And this is the first year in a few years that I participated. Um, and there were over 400 cars. That's amazing. 1904 and older. And, you know, they go 20 miles an hour to go the 60 miles from the center of London down to Brighton. And that they go 60 miles in those things? Oh, yeah. No, it takes a while. It's a five. And you're on like hour. highways and stuff with them, aren't you? Well, you try to. No, they they keep you on mostly secondary roads, but there's this that one that's this one me. hill that you you know you could jog up faster than most of the cars are going, and mm. there's crowds out there cheering you along to try to get up the one hill, mm-hmm. um, and like young people driving a lot of them. Mm-hmm. It's super. It's super cool. It's a great experience. Well, what does that tell you about one of the topics I wanted to touch on with you? Because um, I don't restore cars typically. Um, I just did with that 911, but I knew some people didn't need a lot of body work. But now I've got this cheap Ferrari that I've been restoring. And I mean, finding the people to do the things I can't do and the wait lists and uh, it's been a real demoralizing experience, Mm. not the fun that I was hoping for because of the the weights and the yeah, how about maybe about three months and it's a year. Oh, geez. And, you know, yeah. I just, um, I really feel like I want to get on some crusade to replenish these craftsmen and women that we need so much. And I know you think about this too. I mean, what are your thoughts? How, I mean, it's easy to say like, well, we got to show them how to do it, but that doesn't seem to be enough. It's like we need, needs to be something more and I'm not sure what it is. Well, I first learned about you know, McPherson College in Kansas yeah, yeah. in 1999 uh, at an event that Jay Leno won a big award. And yeah. he was the one in the middle of this, what should have been a celebratory room, kind of shook his finger at the 
you know, a bunch of big, wealthy car collectors in the front row and introduced them to what McPherson was. And it was college in Kansas. Yeah, with yeah. The, at the time, it was the only automotive restoration program in a, in a four-year college. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got involved in advisory board with that thing. And, and the program is really flourishing. Mm-hmm. And I think um, what we've discovered at McPherson is that when shop class went out of high schools, public high schools, yeah, yeah. is that there were still you know, a, a strain of people that don't learn theoretically. They don't learn by reading books and regurgitating theoretical knowledge. They, they work using their bodies. They work, and they're just as intelligent as the people who work the other way. They're just different. Their brains work different. Yeah. And so after the first number of years, I mean, now there are 130 students in the program. Um, there's actually, I'm going to cough. <coughs> Sorry. I'm sorry. Um, they're getting some of the quality of students at McPherson now that we dreamed of. There was actually a student that decided not to take their acceptance at MIT, but to go to McPherson wow. to become an auto, you know, to go through the auto restoration program and to kind of go from there, middle of Kansas. And I think there's this hunger for those kind of activities and that kind of learning. And a little like the book Saving Sailing, um, the big aha in that book is that everybody's going to have to, if, if we want to see sailing happen recreationally and not just in some museum setting, yeah. we're all going to have to invest a little bit in the community around it. And what he described is, you know, sailing regattas and sailing clubs, that kind of thing. Sure. You know, so what that author talked about is that sailors are going to have to think just a little bit beyond their own ownership cost and their own ownership experience and invest a little bit in the into the community of sailing, yeah. you know, so it doesn't mean you have to go buy everybody's sailboats. It doesn't mean you have to go. It's not like some big philanthropic thing, but yeah. you're going to have to invest a little back. And I guess if there's a single message out of my career, out of a lot of things we've done, I mean, we've had this foundation, we do a bunch of this type of giving is that if we could just get car people to say, yeah, just put a little bit of back into it beyond just owning the thing beyond just using it, beyond just showing it, help find those kids, help fund some of those programs. And it can be really small dollars, but if done, if tens of millions of people do it, I think we can replenish. You know, there, there's, there are a lot of headwinds against so, it, but there are a couple of tailwinds. And one tailwind that I'm encouraged by is as we get into an environment where there's more and more electronics in cars, you know, we're, we are in an era where, you know, emulators of electronic chips and, you know, the chipping of cars mm-hmm. and different types of things. There, There is more capability out there than there was before. 3D printing of parts, you know, the computer machining of, yeah, yeah, yeah. of mechanical parts of really rare cars is a heck of a lot easier than it used to be. Sure. So it's not all impossible, you know, especially if you're into really rare stuff. Um, but it's mostly headwinds. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I don't have the idea to mobilize the masses to do that micro mm. philanthropy that you're talking about, which is like, what What would we tell them to do? And it's all very much self-directed, right? Hey, go get somebody into the hobby, go get this. I mean, the problem with McPherson, I mean, that is an incredible program because it's end-to-end in that they are very careful about tuition, so they're not leaving with a huge debt burden. But a friend of mine went there with his kid and he said they have 50 spots for the next class. And they're going to, you know, I don't know how they figure out who the 50 are, but it's limited. 
Wait, listen. Yeah, it needs more. I mean, we need. Well, we need more McPhersons. Yeah. Two hundred McPhersons are, yeah. are, are totally more. So, yeah, what I hear from, because um, everybody talks about it, you know, the 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 people who already do this work, and I say like, why don't you have an apprentice? Why don't you have this? And I'm hearing like, <clears throat> well, they don't stick with it, and it's a four year apprenticeship to really get competent. Yeah, and so there's some. Maybe that's shifting. Maybe there's a, a greater um, appreciation for this um, craft people or craft work, and maybe that'll change with that next generation. But that's one of the tailwinds I see. I don't know if you've noticed that, have you? Oh, it's look. I think there's a there's a desire for people to want to do it, but the need for apprenticeships are very real. Yeah. And the biggest impediment, I mean, just again, my my lens is kind of through this, you know the thousands of students now have gone through the McPherson program sure. or hundreds or whatever. They've self-selected though. Um, but the biggest impediment to the apprenticeships and the internship type models that they need is actually housing. No kidding. Yeah. So there are shops that want the apprentice, but they can't afford to put them up or there is no cheap enough place to put them up in LA oh, or yeah. Miami or, you know, wherever maybe a really good shop is. Um, Paul Russell, you know, who has one of the premier, sure. you know, really fancy restoration shops. I mean, he put in four apartments in one of his buildings for apprentices because he knew it. Wow. You know, because you can only pay, you know, some hourly rate for an apprentice to work sure. in your shop, but they actually need kind of like free housing. Wow. Yeah. So there's so, some of that going on. So there's some There more. is, but you got to think it all the way through. And it's a it's a financial burden for somebody to pursue that kind of career. I mean, I think the other thing that for, for those people who might be ever listening, listening to a podcast like this, you know, I'm a venture investor. I love investing in startups. Mm -hmm. I don't expect them all to be super awesome. But, you know, I think there's an opportunity for those who, you know, they, they're giving in the world is more done through like investment rather than donation mm. is there's a roll up strategy around a lot of these smaller businesses where mm -hmm. you could help younger people buy, you know, out an owner of a company and, oh, and um, you know, yeah, help sure, them sure. acquire a business, you know, just get them on their feet. It's, it's actually so much of the burden, the self-selecting out is money. They can't see the, the path money. through mm. getting through an apprenticeship, getting the housing. They, they have no access to the debt. Mm. And just if we, if it's that little bit of a push, that somebody needs mm -hmm. and if they're minded that way they can end up with a you know a really nice little business and an income stream for life for sure yeah the changing of the guard is going to be interesting <clears> too because as you talked about those electronics this the stuff i'm hearing on the ground is when they started using circuit boards for the electronic fuel ejection in the 80s over time that material just gets old and brittle mm. the capacitors dry up yeah. and you can look at it and, and it looks fine but all the little solder joints are cracked yeah, for sure <laughs> and who's gonna fix all that stuff yeah, of course so it, it is kind of a <laughs> or all the like nav screens from toyota oh, supras that are all like burned in you know with your <laughs> fog hat eight track now i'm sorry that's totally gonna be a thing so um anything that you know this one thing i was we were just spitballing a little bit and you know, the uh, the Ferrari movie came out. It was great. The Ford versus Ferrari movie was out. Are there any other car stories out there? If you could fund a movie that you would say, this is the story that needs to be told. Well, those were two really great Those stories, were two good, right? really good ones. Yeah, yeah. Two iconic names, two iconic stories. Although 
honestly, the number of people that I took to the movie, especially Ford versus Ferrari, who had never heard of Carol Shelby and just came away blown away. Yeah, that is wild. Um, that was pretty interesting. Sure. You know, so it really like teed up the world to be able to see something pretty cool. Sure. You know, you also remember Tucker, I think, you know, back in the day. I mean, Tucker was, you know, I mean, there were only, what, 51 Tuckers made. Amazing. And yet, you know, there was a great Hollywood movie made about it mm -hmm. and kind of made people recognize that there are these underdogs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look, if during COVID we could have a, you know, a series with Anne Hathaway about WeWork, I certainly think we have an awful lot more stories in the car uh, world that we could tell. 100%. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah I mean, you think of the... You know, it'd be a period piece, but you think of Rolls Royce, or you think of Bentley, or you think of some of those, and of those the, you know the rivalries, the underdog years, the all of that kind of stuff. Um, pretty, it's rich, pretty interesting. It's a rich, yeah. it's totally a rich vein. So, anything else before we uh, sign off about 2024 that you think um, the car world should know? Well, I have a question for you. Uh -oh. So, think about this. You know, you, you know, you've been running the Haggerty media world mm -hmm. for a long time you know mm -hmm. you have all these writers and all these content creators mm -hmm. um a lot of them are younger than you know s maybe some other folks and other have, parts of the and, car world and uh women yes too of course well yeah. thank goodness yeah. and um so what do you think about how, how is that whole group thinking about the future and, and what do you think about i mean we we kind of exist a little bit more in the vintage car space but we're doing a lot more new cool car stuff too like how do you think about it um they think and i'm gonna speak in generalities here um that there's i think they feel as a generation they're they're misrepresented and whenever i hear somebody say like well these kids they don't want to work they don't want to do anything i always think like i mean i can show you half a dozen that are super smart way smarter than I was at that age, work really hard. So I don't feel that at all. I feel like super encouraged and positive that this generation's coming up and they're bringing a whole new skill set mm. with these new tools mm. that enables them to do way more. Um, the second thing is that, to your point about we're in a golden age of cars, I mean, we just did something last fall where we had new cars you could buy today that are still driver's cars. Mm. There's that Toyota Corolla, there's a BRZ, there's a Miata, there's a Mustang, there's uh, this Acura Integra, and you know probably half a dozen more that aren't that expensive. And they depreciate quickly. So I think three people on our staff have those Focus STs because hmm. they depreciate. So I don't see <clears throat> this loss in enthusiasm. I only see it growing because they can connect easier. They're doing their own events from grid life to... I don't know if you see this thing this guy does where he closes off the roads in West Virginia and he holds a drift event on it. No. I mean, the creativity no. is like, it's awesome. just off the charts. So I feel very positive and encouraged. And maybe I'm just in a bubble where that's where I see, but they're exposed to it in much easier. Remember you and I, we had to go buy the magazines and it was once a month and we waited they're getting it on their phones 24 hours a day. Of course. And they're creating it. So did that answer your question? I feel super duper positive about this next generation. Well, I feel the same way too. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I find myself kind of in my career sitting on a lot of boards and sitting with a lot of, I, I'm a, you talked about at the beginning of this, yeah, I'm at this intersection. Yeah. 
I'm at an intersection of age in the car world. And yeah. I, I always have felt that because for most of my early career, I was much, much younger than the people I was aspiring to build businesses like, mm -hmm. or we were mixing with, you know, they were more senior, generally all men, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, bigger companies in many cases, the big collectors, the car people, the racers, everybody, they were all older. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was, I was like this bridge generation you know, where I can kind of see the, I am, yeah, yeah I'm a Gen, yeah, Xer, Gen Xer, you know, yeah. in between, um, you know, what was, you know, my father, the silent or GI generation, and then the baby boomers who are, you know, not out of a long way from out of cars, but in general, you know, a characteristic of the baby boomer generation is that they simplify their lives as they age. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they don't need 10 cars anymore. They're happy with three cool cars or two or one or the one that they really want to just drive. And That's it's fair. totally fine. Yeah, yeah. And so I find myself defending the younger generations to the older crowd much more than I would expect. And, and I was I at too. a big board table yeah. with 25 people in it a couple of weeks ago with a bunch of names that people would know. And I'm like, no, no, they, they're, people they're, like this. You know, the only thing I tell some of the older folks is, you know, we may actually need some cars to have a stall in their value increase or to dip. So the next generation can buy them, you know, that, and that's where a little bit of depreciation for some of these great later model cars, and then they can go up in value is great. You want to be able to buy them. Yeah. I remember like a gazillionaire car person that we know uh -huh. who races Ferraris. Mm -hmm. And he said, we used to go vintage racing because it was cheap racing. <laughs> and I know it sounds yeah. weird probably to people today. It's like, yeah. because to go new current vehicle racing to like go buy a Lama car or buy a whatever like was seriously expensive right you know but to buy a 10 year old one and go vintage racing was like relatively cheap and you could still drive a Porsche or a whatever mm -hmm. you know a Corvette like a co competitive level Corvette and go racing with it um so you know I think the cycle moves on and I just find myself defending the next gen a lot more because I'm I'm very optimistic about the future. Oh and the best totally. thing about it, the next generations are very large, which is great. Mm -hmm. That means more people. We don't need every single one of them to love cars, but if we have some, it's enough. And, you know, we live in a world that still allows people to appreciate them. You know, the idea of the individual, whether they want to go sailing on their chartered or versus <laughs> chosen path. Uh, or, you know. Well, what is it? The um, I, I can't. It's a very vague reference. It's like the lifeblood of any company. The lifeblood of whatever is the people. And um, that sounds trite. But then I see this next generation and they have these digital tools, <clears throat> which, you know, social media has really gutted what what I do. Yeah. Right. Let's sure. face it. On the flip side, what these that generation does with those tools in a creative way is so fun and oh. so amazing. And then they use it. I'm like, they, I mean, I use it too. I'm not that old, but you know, they, they, they connect. And, you know, I'll give you one little anecdote about these cars that have to be cheap. You know, I'm a big Miata guy. Mm. I have two now. I've raced them, love them. I think they're one of the best cars and they're still really, really cheap. And if you go on the groups on like Facebook, it's all kids. Yeah. Which surprised the hell out of me. I thought it would all be all gray beards like me, but it's not. And I, I, my, I was asking my son about it because he drives ours a lot. I said, what is he? He's like, well, they're cheap. Yeah. They're, of course. You can get a really good one for five grand. So that, the focus is tease. I, 
it's alive and well. And it's it's in the same stuff we love. They love too, maybe in a little bit different. But you know, you talk about vintage racing, it's cheap, but look at what's what's emerged to fill that need. Lemons, yeah. chump car, the gambler. You ever see what those people do? Oh, yeah. The five hundred I mean, it's it's like you can't help but laugh. And it, it just But the hot rod, I always tell people, what you know, how did the hot rod thing start? I'm like People had wanted cheap donor cars to figure out how to make them go fast. That's what they got for. That's it. That's it. So I'm look, I'm super encouraged about it. I'm excited about our work. Um, And, you know, what we get to do is pretty fun. Totally fun. Well, I appreciate your time. Hope to have you back soon. Um, Thank you very much, Mikhail. Thank you, Larry. 